I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In this episode, I would like to explore the following thesis. Emotion is a sign of nothing. Now, I tweeted that a couple of days ago, and those who understand the issues biblically and historically, those who have read men like Jonathan Edwards in particular, understood exactly what I meant. But of course, many did not, and so the purpose of this episode is to explore more fully what I meant, and we'll look at Jonathan Edwards as well, what he meant by this idea of signs of nothing. Before we get into that, I just want to remind you of the Church and Family Life Conference coming up May 19th through 22 at Ridgecrest in North Carolina, a wonderful conference that my whole family has enjoyed several times. I'll be speaking there. The subject is Knowing God, and I'm really looking forward to that and encourage you to look into going to the conference as well. Also, if you are a pastor or if you are training for ministry, I encourage you to check out Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas, a wonderful seminary, and I'll be teaching a course on Theology of Worship August 11 through 13, and so I'd encourage you to take a look at that as well. When I use this phrase, emotion is a sign of nothing, I am riffing off of Jonathan Edwards' book, The Religious Affections. Edwards, of course, lived during a time of transition in the West when the Enlightenment was beginning to influence a lot of philosophical and theological categories. And also, Jonathan Edwards was, of course, one of the leading figures of the Great Awakening in America. Edwards was convinced that people needed to come to Christ, that there was a lot of nominal Christianity in the church, and so he began to faithfully preach from the scriptures justification by faith alone, the wrath of God that all men deserve, and as a result, many, many people came to faith in Christ. If you read his sermons, you can see that his preaching was very vivid in its language. It captured the imagination. It took images from scripture and impressed them upon the hearts of the listeners. But he wasn't manipulative emotionally in how he preached. He preached from a manuscript. He preached faithful expositional sermons. And beginning in 1734, what he would later call a surprising work of God began to occur. Edward said this, The Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in and wonderfully to work among us, and there were very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons who were, to all appearances, savingly converted, and some of them wrought upon in a very remarkable manner. And by that he meant that there were sometimes significant emotional outbursts, people fainting, people crying out, people having high and intense emotional responses to what he thought was the convicting work of the Spirit of God. And that work of the Spirit began to spread to other towns as well. Well, the vast number of conversions that began to take place in these churches in America between 1730 and 1740, some of which were accompanied by intense physical emotional responses, led to two sorts of responses, two sorts of extremes. On the one hand, some Christian leaders considered the physical responses as really what were the defining characteristics of the awakening. And so they sought to recreate those experiences. They sought to stir up the emotions, believing that it was the emotions that were the 
necessary evidence of the Spirit's work in people's lives. A prime example of this is one New York Presbyterian minister, James Davenport, whose services were known to be characterized by irregularity and disorder. One Boston Evening Post article described it this way, His hands extended, his head thrown back, and his eyes staring up to heaven, attended with so much disorder that they looked more like a company of worshippers of Bacchus, the Roman god of drunken revelry, than sober Christians who had been worshipping God. So that was one extreme. People began to try to recreate the revival through emotional excesses. But other leaders rejected the validity of the awakening altogether because they saw that what was happening as merely excesses of emotionalism. People like Charles Chauncey were influenced by Enlightenment rationalism and therefore argued that the revival was just the work of overzealous fanatics. But both of these responses, right during the upswing of the influence of the Enlightenment, came as a result of a newly growing secular understanding of emotion. And I would argue that most today have also been influenced by this post-Enlightenment, really Darwinian, secular understanding of emotion, which has muddied the waters when we discuss this issue. A significant philosophical shift occurred during the Enlightenment, of course many did, but one of those was the emergence of the naturalistic category of emotion. When theologians and philosophers prior to the Enlightenment, prior to the Age of Reason, talked about human sensibilities, they didn't use the word emotion. That's a new word. They used more nuanced categories of, on the one hand, the affections of the soul, things like love, joy, peace, the fruit of the spirit, etc. And on the other hand, the other category was the appetites or passions of the body, things like hunger, sexual desire, anger, and so forth. We find these very categories in the New Testament. New Testament authors used Greek terms, Greek metaphors, really, to describe these categories. They used the metaphor of the splankna, which is the chest, to designate the noble affections, things that we ought to pursue as Christians, and the koilia, the belly, for the sort of base appetites. They're not evil, they're not wrong, we'll talk about that in a moment, but we must not allow them to control us. So, for instance, Paul urged Christians in Colossians chapter 3 to put on the splankna, the affections of, and notice the characteristic of these, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But in Philippians 3.19, Paul described the enemies of Christ as those whose God is their belly, whose God is their koilia, their physical appetites. So this New Testament way of understanding human sensibility really dominated Christian thought and philosophy from the early church, the Protestant period, all the way up through the Reformation. The affections were the core of spirituality. That's what is to be nurtured, developed, encouraged. These are inner spiritual realities. But the appetites, while not evil, in contrast to Gnosticism, again, we'll talk about that in a moment, must be kept under control lest they overpower the intellect. 
Theologians influenced by the scripture believe that the Bible taught a holistic dualism. There is a dualism between spirit and body, but there's also a unity. The material and immaterial for man made in the image of God are combined to compose who we are. And so while the body and the spirit are both good and constantly do interact and influence one another, and physical expression is part of the way that God created us, Biblical worship, biblical spirituality, should aim at cultivating both the intellect and the affections, but at the same time calming and keeping under control the passions. In contrast to this pre-modern way of thinking, the purely naturalist environment of the Enlightenment created a new psychological category that philosophers called emotion. Emotion is this non-cognitive, purely physical, involuntary feelings that usually more corresponds to the appetites, the koilea, the belly, the feelings. But unfortunately, because of the influence of the Enlightenment, we lost a category for describing biblical spiritual affections. And so today, people who look at the New Testament, for example, and see words like love, joy, and these sorts of things like the fruit of the spirit, or see descriptions of responses of the heart, don't have a category to describe that. We've lost that spiritual category of the affections. And so we typically just use this sort of nebulous, squishy word, emotion. Well, that's exactly what was happening in Edward's day. That was the beginning of it, when this confusion was beginning to happen. And Edward's reply in his book, particularly The Religious Affections, was to emphasize the distinction between religious affections and physical responses, which was nothing new. He was simply articulating New Testament teaching and the teaching of theologians and pastors and philosophers all the way from the New Testament up into the Enlightenment. Edwards defined religion, biblical Christianity, as consisting in the affections, Christianity is not merely an intellectual thing. It consists in great part, Edwards argued, in the religious affections. But he insisted the religious affections may or may not manifest themselves in external feelings or expressions. The bodily feelings might come as a result of spiritual affections, but they might not as well. Here's what Edwards argued. He said, the affections and passions are frequently spoken of as the same. He saw that these categories were being blurred in his day. But then he said, there is a difference between them. And here's how he defined them. Affection, affection is a word that in the ordinary signification seems to be something more extensive than passion being used for all vigorous, lively actings of the will or inclination. So our affections are spiritual impulses of the will. They are what move us to do what we know in our mind is right. Just knowing the right things doesn't influence us to do the right things. We need to cultivate the spiritual affections for what is true and right and beautiful. And that moves our will, our inclination to do what we know is right. Edwards continues, but passion for those that are more sudden and whose effects on the animal spirits, by that he just means adrenaline, uh, physical feelings, 
the chemical responses of our bodies that really are no different than animals. He says that passions have effects on the animal spirits, the physical feelings that are more violent. And notice this, and the mind more overpowered and less in its own command. So he wanted to emphasize this distinction, but again, he is responding to two extremes. He is responding both to those who are defining the revival by the physical expressions and those who reject the revival because of the physical excesses. And what Edwards argues, and this is where I got that phrase, emotion is a sign of nothing, in the religious affections, Edwards argues that there are certain things that are signs of nothing. And by signs of nothing, he means they are neither signs of good, nor are they signs of evil. They are signs that should neither lead us to affirm what is happening is of the Spirit of God, nor should they lead us to conclude that what is happening is not of the Spirit of God. And among the signs of nothing, Edwards said, intense and high affections. Just because people have high quote-unquote emotion doesn't mean that revival is truly taking place, nor is it proof that revival is not taking place. It is a sign of nothing. He also lists things like physical manifestations, excessive excitement and talkativeness, the way in which affections are brought about, even something like praising God. He says just because someone has high emotion, just because someone is praising God, doesn't mean they are truly converted, nor does it disprove that they're converted. Again, that's what he means by a sign of nothing. So then how do we know that we have truly spiritual affections? Well, Edwards also in the Religious Affections describes biblical characteristics of religious affections. And they really have nothing to do with outward manifestations of feelings or physical expressiveness. What characterizes religious affections, according to Edwards and based on the scripture, is what they lead us to do, how they impact our lives long term. Edwards argued you really can't discern whether someone is really being convicted or moved by the Holy Spirit in the moment. Rather, you have to look over time. You have to look at the perseverance of a believer. You have to look at the spiritual growth of a believer. And if over time a believer is growing spiritually, they are more and more drawn to spiritual things. They grow in their love for Christ and love for the brethren. They grow in the pursuit of holiness. Then that is certain evidence that spiritual affections are growing in the life of a believer. And in fact, many years after the Great Awakening, Edwards admitted that maybe he should have been more careful during that time because many of the conversions that were actually resting on emotional experiences later proved to be false. Not all, but many did. Now again, I want to stress that this does not mean that physical feelings are wrong or evil. Again, that's why Edwards described them as signs of nothing. As physical beings, we have physical feelings. Much of what we do in corporate worship is embodied. We do things with our bodies. We look with our eyes. We sing with our voices. 
We hear with our ears. We even use our mouths and our fingers as we eat and drink at the Lord's table. We can't worship according to the instructions given to us in the word of God without our bodies. The Bible teaches that the human body is good. God created the body, and so by nature the body is good. And Jesus Christ took on a human body at his incarnation, and he will have a body for the rest of eternity. Jesus died bodily. He rose bodily. He ascended bodily. And one day he will return bodily. The body is good. And we don't want to fall into the trap of Platonic Gnosticism, which argued that the body is bad and therefore denied that Jesus Christ really had a physical body or that he rose bodily from the grave. The body is created by God. Christ took on human flesh. And so the body is good and our corporate worship is embodied worship. I want to stress that. However, while physical expressions, emotion, embodied worship is absolutely necessary and good, we must remember that the essence of what we are doing is fundamentally spiritual. It influences our body to be sure, and we ought to live it out in our body to be sure. But at its core, it is something internal, something spiritual. When we gather for worship, we are doing things physically here on earth in this place with one another. But we always have to remember that we are united with Christ. And so what we are doing is we are actually, we are communing with God through Christ. But as Ephesians chapter 2 teaches, we do so in the spirit. Our communion with God is not something that we in this present age see or physically experience or feel, our communion with God is in its essence spiritual. And this is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we must seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and we are in him. Set your affections on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The nature of our fellowship with God is spiritual in its essence. And so our central focus should not be on things that are on earth, but rather our inner spirits must be set on the true reality of things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God, and where we who are in him really are in his presence spiritually. The implication then is that, again, the essence of our fellowship, our communion with God, is not physical, it is spiritual. We can even see this in Colossians 3, where Paul discusses singing a few verses later. He commands us to verbally sing, that's a good thing, to literally make melody with our vocal cords, but the singing itself is a sign of nothing. The singing itself is not really the essence of our communion with God. He identifies the essence of what we're doing at the end of verse 16 when he says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We are to set our hearts on things that are above, and now he is saying that our physical verbal singing is an expression of our hearts to God. It flows out of the essence of our worship, hearts that are directed toward God. The physical act of singing alone is a sign of nothing. Singing is not, in its essence, worship. Anyone can sing. Unbelievers can sing. Our physical, vocal, and instrumental music along with any physical emotions we might have, is to be an expression of the true essence of our worship, hearts directed toward the Lord. Plenty of people do the physical stuff without truly worshiping. Plenty of people sing, 
do things with their bodies, have emotional experiences, and they are not actually worshipping. It is a sign of nothing. But the problem is, as physical beings, we naturally tend toward defining the essence of our communion with God in physical terms. We want to have access to the presence of God through Christ and the Spirit. We want to have communion with God, but we want physical proof of these biblical realities. We want to be able to feel God's presence. We want to tangibly experience communion with God. And so when we're asked, how do you know that you've worshipped? We want to be able to say something like, I felt God. I experienced his presence. But we have to remember, while we are truly worshipping in God's presence through Christ, it is in the spirit and it is not yet a physical reality. One day it will be a physical reality. When Christ, who is your life, appears bodily, then you will also appear bodily with him in glory, Colossians 3, 4. But that time has not yet come. We are already there spiritually, but not yet bodily. And this is why faith is so necessary for drawing near to God for communion with him through Christ. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We need faith as we draw near to communion with God, because even though we know that we have access to the presence of God in the real temple of heaven in Christ, we can't see it, we can't see God or feel God or experience God with any of our physical senses. Our communion with God is at its essence spiritual. And so we come with assurance and conviction that when we draw near to God through Christ, we are actually in his presence, even though we have no tangible physical proof. We do physical things and we have physical emotion, but those are signs of nothing. And when we're asked, how do you know that you've worshipped? We ought to answer, I know that I've worshipped because I drew near to God through Christ with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Our assurance that we've worshipped or our assurance that we've had some sort of spiritual experience with God is not based on anything physical. It's certainly not based on just simply doing our duty, but it's also not based on any kind of feeling or experience, which again are signs of nothing. And this is where there is a gross misunderstanding today, particularly influenced by 19th century revivalism and then 20th century Pentecostalism. Christians today expect to be able to tangibly feel the manifest presence of God when they worship. For overt Pentecostals, it's through visible displays of his glory, miraculous gifts, these sorts of things. But for many, for most evangelicals, we want to experience some sort of emotional rapture. The goal of music and the worship leader is to usher worshipers into the presence of God in heaven, where we can feel God, where we can experience God. But this is a serious misunderstanding of the nature and essence of our relationship with God and the essence of worship that must be corrected. And I would encourage you to get my two latest books, Biblical Foundation of Corporate Worship, the final chapter deals with this subject extensively, and then Change from Glory into Glory, the liturgical story of the Christian faith, in which I trace how this has shifted and changed over time in church history.
We desperately need to recover our understanding of the nature of our relationship with God as drawing near by faith to communion with God through Christ, who is seated in the heavenlies, and we are in him by the Spirit, but we do so again by faith, believing these things to be true, even though we don't have any physical proof of them. Physical feelings and embodied worship are good and necessary things, but they are signs of nothing. Anybody can do that. The only true sign that we have worshipped, the only true sign that we have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, the only true sign that the Spirit of God is working in our lives is long-term progressive spiritual growth in the life of a believer. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.